Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 10 years of law enforcement analysis experience, spending time with the Open Source Intelligence Exchange, Harrison County Sheriff's Office, and the National White Collar Crime Center. In a short period of time, he's expected he's experienced many aspects of the profession, private sector, public sector, security, and even gang investigations. Representing the Mountain State, West Virginia, please welcome Randy Stickley. Randy, how we doing? Good, good, sir. How about yourself? Very, very good. Thank you for joining me today. Well, we only saw each other quickly at the conference, but it was nice seeing you in person. Yeah, yeah, same. It was, you know, I've listened to your podcast many a time, so it was almost, you know, simpatico or fate or whatever you want to call it that we had that passing moment at the conference. Did you enjoy Chicago? Hmm. You know what? I did. I've been to a lot of the, uh, the major metro hubs around the country, but Chicago was somehow one that I've always either flown through or flown over. So, you know, it was good to see a lot of the sites, stuck a lot to the downtown area, but most of the time got to hang out with some of my favorite people, which are, you know, folks of our capacity, the analytical folks, just simply because one of my favorite things is that people think analysts, and you've probably heard this many, many a time, but they think the analysts are the mushroom people where they're put in the dark, they're left alone, and then they come out. And then you put them back in the dark again until they're needed. But they are some of the most vibrant, interesting individuals because they all have stories and such diverse and widespread subject matter expertise that really plays into their character. So I, I loved it. All right, good. You know, and I was in the same boat as well. Chicago had escaped me for all this time until this trip, and I really enjoyed being in Chicago. I was only there four days, but was able to experience many of the themes of Chicago, and of course, the IACA conference was a success. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the other, the other big takeaway for me was being able to speak to, you know, a pretty large audience there. I've spoken at many other conferences before and done many a teaching, briefing, or what have you on this in, online environment. But to speak to an international crowd that had some interesting representation, it, it was a real humbling kind of experience to be able to stand there and talk to those folks as colleagues and peers rather than just briefing to them something that I've been researching. So it was a nice new experience for me as well. All right. Well, let's get started then. How did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? So compared to a lot of folks, I actually goes way back to when I was in high school. We had to do in West Virginia up to a certain point, we had to do a senior project, which if I have any peers from West Virginia who are listening to this, you're probably going to groan when you hear the senior project. But we essentially had to do this to determine what we wanted to be exactly what we wanted to be as an adult. And, you know, Jason, I think you know this just as well as anyone. I don't know what I want to be tomorrow some days. Yes. <laughs> so so it's kind of hard to tell an 18-year-old, figure out your entire career path. And one of the things that I tentatively thought I wanted to do was to be a lawyer. So I shadowed a local lawyer. I played football with his son. And this local lawyer, you know, gave me a lot of great insights. I did my whole senior project based around being a, a prosecutor. And then eventually, I think I ran into him at a football game. And, you know, this individual said, Randy, what did you want to go to school for again? And I said, well, for undergrad, poli-sci or political science. And he said, I have a political science degree. You can do one of two things with that. And I said, what's that? He goes, go to law school or drive a cab. <laughs> so 
if you talk about just this major deflated feeling, not for any reason of his, just, wow, that's really the ultimatum I'm staring at here. So, you know, nothing, nothing wrong with driving a cab. I wanted to get into this field, though. So I had my first college visitation day to my alma mater, which is Fairmont State University, a little, little known state institution here in West Virginia. And they have a really interesting kind of nugget of a program called National Security and Intelligence. Undergrad, one of the few on the East Coast, I think one of the only other ones on the East Coast that does undergrad work in this would probably be Mercyhurst up in PA. Mm-hmm. So went there, met the, you know, lovely, one of the lovely professors that I still hold in high professional and personal kind of colleague regard, Mr. or Dr. Greg Noon. And the first thing he said to me was, oh my God, you got to play rugby. Uh, simply because he was, the, <laughs> since he was the rugby chair, he, you know, he saw a 6-2 and at the time I was still carrying around a lot of my football weights. So I was still sitting about 270, 275 and he just saw a power forward. I'm trying to talk to him about college stuff, but he eventually said, you know, what are you trying to study? And I said, political science. And he goes, you have to double major and without missing a beat. And I was like, well, I don't know about that. He goes, I tell people this all the time. If you're not double majoring, you're doing yourself a major disservice because most folks who go into poli sci feel they need to go to law school, feel they need to go right into politics or work on a campaign. And that was such a limited view of what I wanted to do. So I got a tour of where eventually I would end up working as my first analytical role. And I was hooked because <clears throat> whenever I used to hear the phrase national security, you know, I, I explain this to folks all the time. I was a big consumer of fiction about it. Read a lot of Jean Le Carré, read a lot of Ian Fleming, read a lot of Dan Brown, a lot of this stuff that had suspense and mystery to the profession. Really kind of mystified it or, you know, maybe added some stigma to it. But that real world kind of application that that led me to, you know what, maybe I want to get into this field. And I'll tell you what really, really hooked me was my second semester. I've had Dr. Noon for a couple classes, but then I had an individual who to this day I hold is probably my and not to discredit anyone else I've had educate me throughout my career, but this individual I hold is a good personal friend, a good professional colleague, and he was my first professional boss. His name is Dave Abruzzino, and Dave ran the Open Source Intelligence Exchange when I went to Fairmont. And Dave hired this small student crew of young burgeoning analysts who got to handle real-world applications for real-world customers in various areas. USIC, some folks in the military, the legislature, what have you. And I asked him, I heard about this, I got a tour of the lab. So I asked Dave, you know, what's something I have to do to get into the lab? And, you know, forgive my, my frankness and candor on this, but he just said, impress the hell out of me. <laughs> and I remember it was right after we wrapped the first class, he had a batch of interviews and it was invite only for interviewing. I got one of the invites and you know, went through the interview, kind of sweat bullets. It was my first professional interview and everything and got hired. And as we say, the rest is history. That was my first real exposure to it that led me from wanting to become a, a possible lawyer, you know, Randall Stickley Esquire to, you know, Randall Stickley intelligence analyst. So that's kind of a cool thing for me. Yeah. So back to the national security and intelligence degree, what type of classes do you take for that degree? Well, the running joke was we used to tell people what we studied, and immediately people got ideas that we were going through CIA or MI6 level training, fast roping out of helicopters, you know, uh, paintball gunfights at lunch, doing dead drops on the weekends. No, uh, quite honestly, I joke, but some of these classes were to give us theoretical and practical understanding as to what builds up the U.S. national security process as well as the intelligence process overall. 
a lot of times when we talk about the intel process at the NSI level, and this is something that I think they've done a really good job of, job of since I've been there, it was this perception that it was DC or bust. You ended up at one of the three-letter agencies or you were a failure. And that was no, that was no administrator, that was no faculty who said that, that was us. That was the, that was the students. Because we were so driven, we wanted to make our name out there, wanted to become, you know, these big cornerstones of the profession. And quite honestly, a lot of us missed the ball in that aspect and a lot of us have realized since then that we can end up anywhere we want because that intelligence discipline, those intelligence practicals and everything that we did, they launched us in so many different places. And I think that's a really cool transferable skill that all of us learned that indelibly did us, you know, tenfold favors with our professional endeavors. You know, I ended up here at NW3C. I have a colleague or two that have become lawyers since then that have more investigative means to their positions. A couple of my peers are in the Bureau, a couple work for private industry like Lockheed Martin, Mantech, or Lidos, and then actually one of them who's a dear friend of mine is a law enforcement officer and is one of the best law enforcement officers I know because he has that extra skill to it. So apart from it having the name National Security and Intelligence, you know, it gives you that well-rounded perspective because it hits on all these different nodes of social science, poli-sci, history, and everything in between, but it sets you up to take it and carry it elsewhere. So I thought that was a really cool kind of niche program that had so many other broader implications for its students as they successfully completed it. Yeah, okay. And then you mentioned sweating bullets to, through the interview. So now that you think back about that interview, what do you remember? Okay, so I do remember it was in the lab. It was in the first kind of little, it looked like a skiff. I mean, if anyone in here has ever been in one, it looked exactly like a skiff. So it was just this kind of bare bones looking shop, computers everywhere. And I remember there was one of the analysts who was graduating as I was coming in. They were wrapping up a report. And as soon as I came into the room, they just kind of darted away. It was like, why didn't they make eye contact with me? That's, that's kind of alarming. And then here comes my, my first boss, sits at the table, the conference table in front of us. And he just pretty much sits there and has a conversation with me. And up until that point, you know, one, my first Intel job. So automatically all those misconceptions and pre-notions are running through my head. But then two, this man was so calm, so upfront. That's that's not something I'd seen before simply because I had not gone into a professional setting before. I'm expecting to be, you know, grilled thoroughly about why did I choose to wear that tie with that suit today? Like, you know, something arbitrary like that. So when it came time for us to talk, it was one of the first questions was, what are you reading now? And of course, I thought he meant, you know, oh God, what, he wants to know what news sources I'm reading. So I start rattling off all the, what I thought were the centrist news sources that gave us the best data on world events. He's like, no, no, no. What are you reading? You know, personally, I think an important tenement of an analyst is to just know how to leisurely read. So what are you reading? And I, and I remember exactly what I was reading at that point. I was reading Dan Brown's Deception Point, a really good kind of a thriller mystery novel. But, you know, he, he goes into that. He starts kind of grilling us on our analytical skills. They're like, what is that book telling you? What does that relate to in a real-world application? And that's kind of a little mental test that he had for us. And then if you went, if you went well with that, he went into this lovely rant that was, <laughs> we, have, we have two teams here. We have the away team, we have the whole team. And pretty much if you say one, you're going to be working domestic issues. You say the other, you'd probably be working international issues. And I remember it was, oh, definitely away. You know, you think in national security intelligence, you think this international scale, cool kind of strategic level information analysis. And he said, okay, and what topic would you like to work? 
And I said, oh, Syria, because this is right after, you know, President Obama made the, the infamous red line in the sand, you know, kind of a discussion against the Assad regime about the use of chemical weapons. And he went, okay, everyone does Syria. We already have someone who does Syria. What's something else? And I thought Eastern European affairs, because up to that point, again, because I'm all about defeating stigma and bias on something, who were always the villains in James Bond movies throughout the 60s and 70s? <laughs> it was always the Soviet Union. So I thought, oh, I, I know this perfectly well. <laughs> So when I first came in, he just drops a load, a caseload on me, goes, okay, Mr. North Africa analyst. And I, my jaw dropped. I went, what? And, and like I told folks, when I first heard North Africa, I knew two things. I knew what happened in Libya in, on September 11th, 2012. And I knew Muammar Gaddafi. And after that, it was nothing. Yeah, that was it. So that was, that was why I was sweating bullets. I didn't know what I was going to get. I didn't know what this interview was going to look like. And I let a lot of my preconceptions on this really get the better of me. Interesting. It, and it's funny. I do remember being asked, I'm trying to think of the job that was for where I was asked, what am I currently reading? And I hate to read. I do not read. <laughs> I, I don't. And it was one of those things that I, I really couldn't answer the question because I was like, I, I don't read for leisure. I read for education only. And I didn't get the job. I don't, that was probably one of many reasons why I didn't get the job, but I didn't get the job. So then how did you go about just consuming everything that you needed to know for North Africa? So it was a big issue because you, you would think, and this is my conception of, or notion at the time, I should say, that everything in the world stopped whenever all eyes were on the Levant region, you know, Iraq, Syria, and, and Kurdistan, and then maybe even the Far East with what happens in, or Central Asia, I should say, with Afghanistan and Pakistan. But that's not the case. We all know that. Just because the shift focuses over here doesn't mean the stuff over there stops. So I had to keep an eye on what exactly were some good, unbiased, third-party sources that I could identify and key into that were good for, you know, all the regions from Morocco all the way over to Egypt. And that's really hard to do because if you think about Libya, for example, for a while, Libya operated pretty much as, and still to this point, pretty much operates as a Mad Max movie in political sense. You have so many different factions fighting for the same mission, just different means to get them to that same kind of endpoint where they have different media sources in their pockets. Some of them are a little bit more on the militant side of things. Some of them are a little bit more on the quasi-legitimate governmental side of things. So there was a lot of data sifting, a lot of information sniffing. And some of it, you know, I leaned on some of those old school bias charts. I'm sure you've seen them. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have seen them where it says which media sources are, you know, the most centrist in terms of their reportage or their covering. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I would lean on, you know, reading Al Arabiya first or you know, maybe Al Jazeera first, just kind of seeing what maybe they were citing in terms of some of those resources. But I'll tell you, some of the best sourcing I got was coming from Twitter because there were people that lived in, let's say, Benghazi. They were third-party nationals who had expense accounts, and they were pretty much acting as foreign correspondents who sat there and did this as their bread and butter. They lived, eat, and breathe Libya. And they provided a lot of great upfront information. And from there, I could start keying in on some of the, the talking heads of the factions. You know, who were some of the folks in the LNA? Who were some of the folks from the provisional government? Who were the folks that actually kidnapped the, the president of the Libyan government at one point? And who were the, the talking heads for Islamic State or Ansar al-Sharia when they moved in? So it was a lot of that kind of keying in and target acquisition, target knowing, if you will. One of the things that I always kind of preach to folks is 
how do you get into the mindset of your target? You know, target analysis is a really big cornerstone of strategic intel. And just being able to sit down and wrap your head around enough knowledge, enough information to adequately say, okay, that's where this person's going to speak from, that's their point, and here's how they're going to say it, really helps you speak dividends about it. And depending on if you have, you know, a couple months to read up on it, or if it's just dropped onto your lap and said, here you go, you, you sink or swim pretty quick, <laughs> especially with the, with the, with the optic of the off tempo in your shop. Yeah. What did you find was the, the biggest issue or challenge for the job? Overall, it, it, just at the macro level, the limitation of open source for that region. And what I mean is there were some states and some areas of coverage that were black, completely black in terms of open source. You think of how China monitors their social media activity. I had a friend or a colleague who monitored Iran trying to crack into their social media activity or open source activity. Russia, Russia has it, but it's very limited. So that was back in 2013, 2016. So Libya was still kind of that quasi, is it there, is it not there? And most of it wasn't there because folks were, specifically in Lib or Benghazi, they were fearful that, you know, you had the Feb 17th, which is another militant group, going to ride through in a tank and get into a skirmish with another member of the Shura Council of Benghazi revolutionaries because they didn't agree with a, an edict or a certain proclamation or a pledge of support to Islamic State. So not many folks were getting onto social media and keeping an eye on that. So from my perspective, just with that that account alone, knowing where these folks were going to move and knowing if they were going to have social media or open source capabilities on their end. So me, as an end user of that information, I could actually extract it, leverage it, and put it into an, an assessment. If you're talking region specific, though, it was just the dynamics. You know, the dynamics could change from one minute to the next. You know, I referenced two of the biggest groups in Libya that kind of held sway over the militant activity. But the second Islamic State rolled in in, oh, God, we caught that in early October of 14, I think, which was probably some of the earliest coverage that was provided of it. They, you know, immediately, I say they, members of the Shura Council just pledged by it, pledged support right then and there, and caused this really big rift between these groups because Shura Council was made up of all the militant groups that at one point either protected, you know, U.S. interests in Benghazi or helped oust U.S. interests in Benghazi. So they already had this weird fragmented mindset that didn't give a discernible heads or tails on what they were going to do. So it was always kind of that from a project level mindset, keeping an eye on what they were doing. It's kind of like kids, kind of like toddlers. You know, you, you take your eye off them for two seconds. Oh, God, you've blown up another tank. How did you do that? <laughs> So, yeah, that, that was my biggest challenge with it, but it was always a new challenge and an evolving challenge as well. All right. So this brings us to your analyst badge story, and at least one of them. And the, for those that may be new to the show, the analyst badge story is the career-defining case or project that an analyst works. For you, Randy, it's during this time that you work on a case regarding Libya. Yeah, this was this is really big for me because, again, being so young in the profession, it felt like right place, right time kind of deal for me. But I was responsible, again, when working these Libyan accounts to have aliases, accounts that were litigiously created within the confines of all sorts of mandates and whatnot that are set up by things like 20 CFR Part 23, EO 1233, and what have you. So without going into specifics, obviously, but we had accounts set up that were pretty much catching all this information. I ran one that tripped the wire of somebody who from that region said, you know, you should come into this marketplace. You know, Facebook marketplaces weren't really the, the biggest thing at that point. They were there, but they weren't as popular as they are now. 
So I got invited in and I thought, okay, maybe I'll catch a couple of youngsters talking about maybe some activities or glean some context from their, you know, open source or their kind of clandestine social media posts in these comments. But then sure enough, I'm like, okay, that's a truck with a, with a dish gum out. That's weird. Okay, that's a garbage bag full of hand grenades. And, you know, that's an RPO Schmel. That's a thermobaric rocket you know, platform. And I just, I kept thinking these were like memes people were posting. But then I started going into the comments and they were haggling over pricing. And it wasn't like, you know, I'll give you 500 for this. It was like, how much for 40 units? How much for 500 hand grenades? And I was like, oh my God, I have stumbled upon this kind of open source social media based arms bazaar. And this is the kind of thing. And if anyone remembers around that time, that's when the show or the mini series, The Night Manager came out, which is about somebody breaking down a, an arms ring. So I was like, oh, my God, this is Jean Le Carre in real life. <laughs> I stumbled across this and I found four or five more of these pages that were associated with it that were all kind of run by the same folks. You know, that kind of six degrees of separation thing that folks talk about. You know, same social circles, just different people. Mm -hmm. This is what I was running into. They were all from different members of maybe IS affiliates, Ansar al-Sharia affiliates, or what have you. So I ran up, ran up the poll to our XO at the time, our executive officer, and to Dave, and, you know, we just ran with it and started writing up on it, doing all this kind of analysis. And it was, it was probably one of my longer assessments at that point. It was probably a, a nice, you know, three-pager. You know, again, all that information to be condensed into something that's very brief and concise, but still conveys the message with images and what have you. That was three pages of just blood, sweat, and tears going into this. And I had to let it cool down. I had to, you know, I had a obligation through my schooling work where I got to travel to New York for my second run of Model UN. I had laryngitis during that trip. I was also the, the founder and president of the group, so I already had the stress of making sure the cats were all in the bag. But also, <laughs> was my product going to hit the water? Was my product going to end up on the desk of some of these important folks that were on our distro? And the morning I woke up with laryngitis, I thought, this can't get any worse. And it got 10 times better because I got the ding on my phone. I looked down. And I got CC'd on the comms that the product went out. It was a big success. It, you know, ticked a lot of nodes that weren't being picked up by a lot of the conventional folks in the IC or in some of the other distros that we were in. So that was a really big kind of, wow, you know, here I was, I was early 20s, you know, keeping this account just with subject matter expertise, getting that information into our shop and beating a lot of either Western media or some of the Western IC capabilities and U.S., I should say U.S.-based IC capabilities on that particular topic area. That was a real big kind of, you know, riding high on that for a moment because, you know, just some of the analysis of the weaponry that came out of those pages, they were shocking. I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with thermobaric capabilities of weapons, but that's a that's a that's an incendiary device that not only explodes, but it lights the air around the device on fire. It essentially lights oxygen and ignites oxygen. And I couldn't imagine something like that going off in one of these densely populated, you know, Libyan cities or, Lord forbid, it made its way over to, you know, Western partner, the U.S., or what have you. So it was a really big kind of honor for me to work on that, but it was really exciting for me as well. And that's probably what I would consider my first big success working in this field. Yeah, so I guess with that, you stumble upon it, and it, to me, it like, seems kind of odd that they would just be so casual about discussing this on what is essentially Facebook. Yeah, which, again, you have to kind of have that mechanism in the back of your mind. Is this a deception? Is this something that's set up to catch folks up and trip them? Is this a counterintelligence measure? These are things that people don't necessarily think about, but they should, because 
Anyone can conduct counterintelligence. Anyone can throw out the false breadcrumbs, the false flags, or what have you to really throw an investigator, even the most steadfast ones, off their trail. And I'll tell you, I went through it multiple times. I juggled it, and I started cross-referencing the folks that were following my, you know, alias Facebook accounts, which it was really (laughs) – how I did it was pretty nifty, just taking some of the more – radical kind of sections, you know, how people cherry pick certain excerpts from books or what have you, religious or otherwise, and use them for very inflammatory rhetoric. I did the same thing for that account, just kind of posted things out there, never had direct contact with folks, because that was kind of the MO. They never had direct contact with individuals in an open forum. But these pages, they were labeled as like the the so-and-so community market. It never explicitly said the IS black market arms page <laughs> sponsored by Libyan Islamic State or Wiley at Al-Barka. Like, it wasn't that obvious. So it was like, okay, you know, I'll get in there. And I thought I was going to be seeing folks, like I said, just kind of haggling over stuff, junk that people didn't want. But that's because it was behind that verification that somebody who, had, who was a close tie with one of these militant groups had to let you in. They were a gatekeeper. And that's where that counterintelligence aspect came in. They were they were looking into you. They were seeing what your electronic footprint was, what your particular penchant was on your Facebook page. Were you saying stuff that was in line with their particular form of, you know, Islam? Were you Sunni? Were you Shia? Were you more of that Salafi persuasion? They had a lot of kind of mechanisms that went into that. And if you were accepted, you were in. It's almost that that mafia mindset that once you're in, you're, you got the keys to the kingdom. You pretty much know what's going on in the inside there. Of course, there's stuff to be said about how they communicate in terms of them being more of a social media distributed network, but it was awesome. And that just goes to show that even some of the best counterintelligence methods can be, you know, duped by somebody who knows their activity, knows their comms or what have you. Mm -hmm. So did you continue to work and gather information in this marketplace or once you wrote your write up? And sent it off, you were no longer on the, on the case. So I stayed on it up until I left 06, and that was because one of the big things that I noticed, even in one of the one of those four or five that was part of that main regional kind of neighborhood based open source market, was that we were seeing early artifacts that were Roman, Egyptian, or something along one of those ancient civilizations along the Mediterranean were ending up on these markets. You know, if you've read any of the research that was done by, like, the Rand Corporation or anybody who does that big think tank level work, antiquities dealing is another big revenue generator for Islamic State and the Levant. You talk about raiding, you know, ancient civilization sites outside Damascus or any of those other UNESCO sites throughout that region. You know, raiding those ancient sites gives a lot of profit for those folks because you always have, and I hate to say this, but stuffy collectors who don't want to know where they got it. They just want to have that ancient Mesopotamian mask on their fireplace. So that was another big market that we tried to hedge on. And we we did a, a, another similar research paper on that. And I hate to say it, that was that one wasn't as well received because folks didn't really perceive the intended threat. You know, mm-hmm. a, what is it? Andy money laundering, counter threat financing is a really big aspect now. And I think we were just a little bit ahead of the curve on the popularity of that type of analysis. But that's another big one that, you know, I'm proud of it. I'm, I had another fellow analyst who was really into ancient antiquities. I know it's a really niche thing to really like, but this individual knew, 
you know, what this certain type of Egyptian sarcophagus looked like or what this specific gold plate meant, you know, from the Alexandria region of Egypt that made its way into Tobruk or Benghazi. So we stayed on it. But then once I left, you know, I kind of turned over the materials and either the MO of the shop changed or, you know, they picked up some other projects, but they kept up with it for a little bit. And then it just ultimately said, OK, we've done enough with this. It's time to provide a similar amount of coverage to another project. Yeah. So did it end up with arrests or was this just used as long as it could for intelligence gathering? So I know the second part to be for sure, but how, and I'm sure you're aware of this and many folks that are in the audience know this, you don't always know when there's going to be something done with that information. Mm -hmm. You're not always sure where, you know, there's, there's something I tell folks whenever I teach them intel. It's and this is something that I was told from a very early point in my career, that if you're not comfortable with something that you write or you produce, having a negative implication on somebody's, you know, standing, then you probably shouldn't be in this position. And that's not to say that everyone who does something bad has something fatal or terrible happen to them, but they, they may be incarcerated. They may have some level of, you know, position where they're not going to be free to walk about the streets. So while producing this, it was like, man, what are we going to think about when producing this? I had another one earlier on in 06 career where a guy was popping up as like the the self-proclaimed prophet or kind of information czar for Islamic State in the western part of Libya. I did a whole kind of assessment on him, a, a profile, if you will, and we're not sure what happened with it. But I will tell you that it, that individual stopped producing information on social media shortly thereafter. So, you know, if you want to use the law of deduction there, you could probably extrapolate, but you don't know. I don't want to say that's fine with me, specifically in that arena, because that is not my position. My position is to provide that level of information, that level of analysis based on my subject matter expertise in the context of somebody's mission. What they do with my intel, what they do with my analysis, completely up to them based on their mission. So I, it's, you know, kind of once it's out of my hands, it's their, it's their you know, tool to use or leave. Hi, this is Paul Arnold, and I just want to tell you the difference between the fast lane and the passing lane is that you're supposed to be passing in the far left passing lane. Even if you think you're going fast enough, get out of the lane. Hi, this is Sally Sarabar, here to tell you that nobody needs to know what first car you have, or what's your pet's name, or what street you grew up on. We all see these on Facebook, and we all want to answer them. But keep in mind that there are people who are reading them, and they're going to go on your bank account, and they're going to say, oh, I forgot my password. Let me reset it. And the bank's going to ask, what's the first street you lived on? What is your cat's name? And what color car did you own? And the person reading it, they're going to look through your questions, and they're going to answer, and they're going to get access to your bank account. We call that social engineering. So next time you see that survey, that questionnaire, Well, as you mentioned, you, you eventually leave Open Source Intelligence Exchange and go on to G4S. So why did you leave and you stay, stay in West Virginia, but talk about the transition, why you left and why you joined G4S? So I like to tell folks that even as we, we start to complete our time in 06, you know, it's time for us to, to sprout our wings and fly. You know, Dave kind of pushed us out of the nest, so to speak. <laughs> but... From there, it was a really unique opportunity because this was an organization, G4S, <clears throat> excuse me, at the time, they were one of the largest private security firms in the world. I think they still are, but 
I think they're part of a bigger subsidiary now, but that's beside the point. They were in contract with a big pharma firm that used to be very prominent here in West Virginia. I'm afraid to say who because folks may throw rocks at me when they find out who I work for <laughs> on that contract. But beside the point, they wanted to, they had, they understood they had a, you know, in print in over 100 countries on the planet. It's a really big reach. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard from folks and, you know, experience in the private sector, the more places you go, the greater the, the propensity or the chance that there's going to be some level of negative activity, not because of your shop or your agency, but because the world's dynamic, things change. People are very hot or cold in certain situations. So we set up a 24-hour, it went through a couple different names. We ultimately settled on Global Security Operations Center, GSOC. And essentially, we were just a group of intelligence analysts, 10 of us, providing global coverage on that particular firm's global interests, life and limb, property of that nature, and any of the threats thereof. So my responsibility at that point, apart from all the other duties is assigned, which is kind of that lovely caveat we all get in our contracts, I'm sure, but part of my responsibility was maintaining subject matter expertise and cognizance of all political activity, social upheaval, militancy, and anything that could pose threats to life, property, or the bottom line in the Western Hemisphere, so North and South Americas, and as well as Europe. That is a big juxtaposition from just focusing on Libya, maybe, you know, Algeria and Egypt every now and then to the entire Western Hemisphere. <laughs> yeah. So trying to get the most out of that while still conducting open source, providing information analysis and intelligence to these executives, executive protection or what have you, it, it really paid off for that organization. But it was a really hard sell because most folks who are in business, they love the bottom line. They love that quantifiable number. This is going to you know, help the bottom line by this much percent. This is going to hurt the bottom line by this much percent. So we were a group of analysts who came from different walks of life. Some people had that national security experience. Some folks had academia. Some folks came from other private. It was a nice little hodgepodge of individuals. But ultimately, when it came down to it, we weren't a quantifiable number. We had all the subject matter expertise in the world, but we weren't something that could be assigned a hard dollar amount. So the shops started getting whittled down a little bit. I hung out there for quite a bit, did a lot of great w research. We actually, <laughs> first weekend on the job was when the purported coup in Turkey happened in about, what was it, 2016 or so. And we had a couple folks that were there. We had to provide that real-time tactical coverage on getting them from point A to point B, told them not to go to the airport in the middle of a coup. They went to the airport in the middle of a coup. <laughs> oh, God. And then... You know, my partner and I at the time, who's still a really good friend of mine, my partner and I just sat back and I remember the first words out of his mouth after that shift. He just clapped his hands together and went, that's immediate return on investment right there. <laughs> <laughs> so it was good. I handled, you know, a lot of great projects, but that was one of those shops that showed me too many chefs can spoil the broth in terms of how you want something to operate and how it's supposed to work, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Hmm. So then this leads you to the public sector then for yeah. Harrison County Sheriff's Office. Yeah. So that I, I, you know, I'm not somebody who settles. I like to ping pong around. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there was an opportunity that came up from Harrison County, which is a county that's just a couple of places south of where my, my wife and I live currently. And essentially, they were wanting to set up what was known as a justice information sharing hub through a collaborative grant they had with NW3C or the National White Collar Crime Center at that time to essentially provide coverage and analysis 
on the particular opioid issue that was going on in the state of West Virginia. And, you know, Jason, I know you're a state over, so I'm, I'm sure you hear all the crazy things that happen from the, uh, the rambunctious cousins of the West. Yeah. But all the things you may hear, they're 100% stranger in real life, just simply because it's such a larger issue than just, okay, it's economically depleted. We are folks that are kind of old school mentality. Certainly that has to feed into one another, but there's so many external factors that feed into it as well, that it's not singularly an opioid issue. It's a narcotics issue. It's a gang issue. There's political implications as well. So it's it was a nice new challenge. And plus, it was something that I could take ownership of. This was probably one of my first big steps up from being a subject matter expert and analyst to somebody who was responsible for the nuts and bolts of what this operation looked like. You know, getting your databases in check, getting all the policies and procedures at play and pretty much requesting data and getting it represented in a way that was consumable to a large swatch of folks in the state who, quite frankly, hadn't had that kind of coverage just yet, maybe outside of our fusion center. Okay. Did you have any growing pains going from the private sector into the public sector? Yeah, a little bit. And you got to think, too, when I was doing my work with OSEX, Open Source Intelligence Exchange, that was, you know, pretty much public, even though we worked, you know, in our own little condensed setting, we were doing a lot with those public facing entities, the, the U.S. government, maybe some state governments here and there. We would occasionally get a private sector project, but we were shielded by our director on a lot of those kind of programmatic things. So then I go from that to private, where everything is very insulated. You're kind of kept in your own bubble. No one touches bubbles. No one's bubbles overlap. And if they do, they both explode. So then you go to public at Harrison County, where everything's laid bare. You know, you are a public-facing entity, law enforcement entity. And quite frankly, when you're dealing with that, you have to. And I did a lot of public speaking meetings early on, and a lot of them were good. But then I, I thought in the back of my head, just some of the questions I got from folks, if you ever were a fan of the show Parks and Rec, a lot of those a lot of those meetings went like Parks and Rec public meetings that Leslie Nope would try to hold. <laughs> it's like, you know, I want to talk about the use of methamphetamine and fentanyl together. Like, I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about underage drinking. Like, <laughs> oh, okay, tonal shift there. So there, there were some growing pains, kind of going out there and putting on my political face whenever I had to talk to the public. Because, again, mushrooms typically kept in the dark, not in the public. So doing that, becoming more public facing, speaking more to an audience, but also getting out on the road more and enhancing collaborations. That's probably where at my, that point in my career was where I realized it's all about who you know and where you know them in terms of the, how those collaborations can work. And I developed a lot of close personal and professional relationships with folks at this level where I still work with them on a lot of projects today. You know, I have a really close relationship with our state fusion center now, partially because this is where I became a fusion liaison officer for them, basically an eyes and ears component of the West Virginia Fusion Center. Do a lot of great work with them. State police had their own intel unit, worked a lot with some folks at another PD that was very close to where I live currently, Granville, did a lot of work with them. So there was all about this collaborative effort, and that also helps with this other issue in West Virginia where, and, I, and it's not a big, you know, pejorative thing or anything like that, but quite frankly, West Virginians have this mindset of we don't like what we don't know. Hmm. It's It's a very Appalachian distinctive thing, and I think West Virginia gets you know, a bad rap for it because we are in the heart of Appalachia, you know, 13 states up and down the East Coast. There's a lot of territory and West Virginia is right there in the middle. So there is this mindset of, you know, if it's it's something new or something we're not a privy to, why would we need to be a party to it? Why is it something that we need help with? And 
I think a lot of folks, specifically in the region that we did a lot of our work in with regards to this project, those folks were hit pretty hard. I mean, there's a couple of regions in West Virginia that were hit especially hard with the opioid issue. You know, if you go to Huntington or Charleston, Huntington, I believe that was subject to a documentary on Netflix called Heroin. That, that a lot of that was in Huntington, West Virginia. And then up here in Morgantown, Fairmont, Clarksburg area, all along what's known as the I-79 corridor, that was hit pretty hard as well, but that's a whole other issue that I'm sure we can talk about here in a moment. So once once they realized there was an issue, they'd be a little more accommodating and welcoming to what we could provide, what we could do to help make this issue either ease or, you know, thwart any future impacts from them. So I think that was one of the other issues with this project as well early on. But from there, it was very successful. Yeah. So does folks embrace John Denver or not? <laughs> you know the funny thing about that i i love john denver i think the song's great i i'm not gonna lie i sing it every time the mountaineers win which if anyone's a football fan on here you know that's not too not too frequently here recently but we're we're rebounding trust the climb but also i also tell folks you know the song isn't necessarily about west virginia and I try not to burst people's bubbles. I remember being at one of my last model UNs. It was the one where I had laryngitis. This very lovely woman who was actually from Switzerland. She was from one of the universities in Geneva. I think she was supposed to be representing one of the West African countries along with Fairmont State's delegation. And I, and she knew we were from West Virginia. She was just being polite and saying, Oh, you know, country roads take me home. And I had had enough. I had, I could muster enough of my voice. I sounded like Alec Baldwin when oh, I had okay. laryngitis, but, but not Alec Baldwin, but what Dave, my old boss used to call skinny Alec Baldwin. I sounded like, like, you know, hefty, tired Alec Baldwin. <laughs> okay. And I, and I just kind of mustered up enough to say, you know, that song's not about West Virginia. It's about Virginia. He just needed the extra syllable. And I just sat back down. Oh. I, felt, I, I felt terrible. <laughs> I, I didn't know that bit of information. That's yeah, a, if you yeah, if you listen to the uh, the lyrics of the song, all of the landmarks that he's pretty much describing are all along the Shenandoah River Valley. Oh man, jeez, hmm. well, I know I just and now I've just burst so many other people's bubbles on a larger scale, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Hmm. Well, let's quickly move on then. We'll talk about something else. So this does bring us to your second batch story, which deals with drugs and human trafficking. So I guess we'll move on to that. Yeah. Yeah. So this one was really cool because in my time working this joint project, again, making a lot of connections and a lot of collaborations, one of them was with the chief of Granville Police Department. His name is Craig, Craig Corcoran. Great, very progressive, forward-thinking law enforcement executive. He wanted to jump on this potential opportunity that at the time, U.S. Department of Justice was running what they call Operation Independence Day, which was basically a large-scale anti-violent you know, crimes against children, internet crimes against children, any kind of exploitation activity. And during that time, I sat in the NW3C office, and one of the folks that was helping provide just some of the legal framework was actually a senior attorney with them at that point. And this attorney knew my my skills, and he was like, I think you should work with them. And I got the go-ahead from, you know, Sheriff Matheny and a couple other folks that I was working with in Harrison County at that time. Became part of the operation. I was pretty much responsible for generating the information, working with a kind of a third-party group that specializes in human trafficking called Deliver Fund, which, you know, if you're not too familiar with them, they're an awesome group of individuals. And working with some of the law enforcement folks that were trained on how to communicate with these folks, trained on how to communicate with these individuals to lure them in come across state lines if necessary, and boom, 
we had folks that were trying to do something not not favorable, so to speak. And, you know, the first day we did it, I had just gotten to the shop in Cranville, was talking to a few of the folks that I knew that were part of their officer corps, and, you know, the, the, the chief hadn't made it in yet. And within five minutes of me being there, one of the officers, who's now a, a chief in a place called Star City, just not far from Granville, said, oh, we got one coming in. And I hadn't even had my first cup of coffee yet. I went, <laughs> but they said, yeah, we got one coming in. I said, okay, well, I'll just go go do your thing. <laughs> and, you know, I, I generated the ops plan. I handled all the information packets. I pretty much got all that information collated. And, again, what does an analyst do once the, the rubber meets the road? We just wait to see. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So it was a really cool endeavor, and I think after, once it was all said and done, I think there was somewhere between we ran the op for five days or so. I think we got somewhere in the neighborhood of like six to eight people mm-hmm. who just came across those lines and were pretty much trying to do something not necessarily favorable with individuals who didn't need to, or were trying to trade something for those activities. Great endeavor, great success. One of them resulted in, you know, the the, the age old debate of. Do we have someone prosecuted on the federal charge for going across state lines, or do we have them charged with a state charge because they violated something per their kind of limitations in the state? And obviously, it had to go back to the state because it was substantially longer (laughs) for incarceration. But another one that during this same time was understanding there was this weird, and again, thinking back to the, the uniqueness of the drug issue in West Virginia. The idea that Huntington and Charleston were so hard hit because they were state capital, they were on this major drug route that was what was known as the drug bus that ran from Huntington to Detroit, that people knew it was coming. Like folks would set up, you know, interceptions just to catch it and apprehend folks and what have you. But near where I live currently, you have West Virginia University, the big one that's the Mountaineer School, Fairmont State University, and my alma mater, and then what is known as Salem University, just near Clarksburg. Those three schools bring in, oh God, I looked it up at one point, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 70,000 extra students per year, mm-hmm. you know, whether spring or fall semesters. And you got to think from a drug proliferation group, a drug trafficking organization, or what have you, that is so much extra potential funding and money that you can make just by having all these folks with their you know, bank accounts in a hand or their trust funds at hand or what have you. So we found that there were groups that don't get along elsewhere, you know, by historical precedents and, you know, security threat groups or gang activity. They shouldn't have gotten along. But we were seeing posts where folks were utilizing on social media, you know, the Star of David, the uh, the handicap sign emoji, and then the, uh, the big red B emoji. And typically those by themselves, you don't really think much of it. But in the context of their conversations, the knowledge of their activities, those were pretty much calls for peace between the gangster disciples, the Crips, and the Bloods in this region, which is unheard of because at the end of the day, there was this theory that we postulated and it held true once we started doing more analysis that they can make so much more money without the widespread violence over territory versus killing each other or beating each other up for somebody stepping on the wrong side of Morgantown because if you've never been here, it is kind of a crisscrossing town. It is a town that has grown up, but pretty much has kept the same shape it has since, I would say, you know, the mid-1800s. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to carve up territory, but they knew if they made nice and they could keep do things amiably, they would make a lot more money, and a lot more of those funds would go into their pockets and pay off in dividends and sustainability of their operations. And to my knowledge, since I've moved on, there are folks who, you know, still 
adhere to that, and there are folks that are still being apprehended in relation to that as part of larger drug rings or nexuses to those activities. And even some of the information that I worked on during that time is still resulting in, in arrests. So there are still some resounding impacts from that activity, you know, just in West Virginia alone. And I think that's a really cool kind of moniker as well, tack onto that initial badge story. Nice. So, well, huh. If, well, I, I can see it. Well, if everybody else is going to make money off of college students, they should as well, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, think about it. Would you want to buy your, your milk with two dairy farmers trying to kill each other right in front of you? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Interesting, man. All right. So how do you then go from the sheriff's office to where you are now at NW3C? So, you know, unfortunately, this was a grant funded position by the Bureau of Justice Assistance, and they wanted to see that the model worked. They wanted to see that somebody could set it up and run with it. And I like to tell folks, you know, if it, folks ask me if it was so successful, why did it, you know, why did it go away? And the short answer is, do you know how many Harrison County templates there are in the country? How many states have how many different counties that are like Harrison County, West Virginia, that had this type of issue or had kind of a nexus to so many regional issues that they could use that grant money and that particular template that we implemented to have success? It was just practically to show that the model works. So it was, it was a great opportunity. But I had already worked with NW3C at that point. I had actually done a couple of adjunct opportunities with them, kind of teaching some classes as kind of a partner sharing thing with me live, working out of their shop. So it was just kind of an easy fit. And they've dusted off an old position that ha they hadn't had before. I, I say hadn't had before, probably six years, seven years you know, prior to me being there. They dusted it off and they revitalized the Intel specialist position. And basically... I just moved on. It was very simple. It was a seamless transition. I, I left Harrison County one day, and then the next day I came back to work as an NW3C employee. Hmm. The, the cool thing was, for sustainability's sake, right around the time that our operation in Harrison County ceased, the West Virginia Fusion Center had just been codified into state code, and they actually started up their first narcotics intel unit. So a lot of the information that we worked on you know, in the opportunity that we had with Harrison County, I handed it over to the Narcotics Intel Unit with West Virginia Fusion Center saying, hey, folks, here you go. You know, you guys have a lot of great experience, a lot of great knowledge, but here's something that may help along the way. And they're still very successful, still a high-functioning, you know, mechanism within our Fusion Center, and I was really happy there was sustainability, at least at that level, that's going to provide further coverage for the great state of West Virginia from their efforts. But once I moved over to NW3C, it was you know, hitting high, hard, and fast with developing different types of training and technical assistance that revolve specifically around the art of Intel analysis. So if anyone here has gone through a Foundations of Intel training, intro to link analysis, intro to strategic Intel, or even an Intel writing and briefing through NW3C, chances are, if it was done in the last couple of years, it came through me. And I, I love every second of it. Hmm. So the intelligence specialist, is that... The same thing as an Intel analyst? Pretty much. Pretty much. Essentially, most of the folks in this core, in the, you know, because there's different specialist positions here. We have, you know, multiple folks that are high-tech crime specialists. We got folks that are multiple financial and economic crime specialists. And then you got just me as an Intel spec because, again, I was the first one I've had in many years. So just trying to build the program back up has been my, my big kind of banner and epitaph, if you will. But the folks that have those kind of general terms associated with their title you know, some of them came from a financial analysis background. Some of them come from an intellectual property theft background. 
Some of them are focused more on dark web open source or virtual currency. So it's more of a blanket term just to say, hey, this individual knows their stuff and they may have certain areas of speciality or subject matter expertise, but you're more than likely going to hear that from them as we go through any of these offerings or as they provide any of their technical assistance. All right. Interesting. All right. Well, I just got a couple follow-up questions here then. So you you mentioned teaching. Mm -hmm. Is there a class or a topic that you really enjoyed to te teaching? Oh, you know, this is this is like saying, you know, which of your kids do you love most? <laughs> you know, I love I love the arts and craft of it in general because it, you know, you've heard me speak to you before and I've spoken to folks about this across the spectrum. I love talking crime analysis, intel analysis, investigative analysis or anything in between with folks. But if I were to pin something down that we talk about specifically, I would probably keep it to like link analysis, quite honestly, mm -hmm. simply because the idea of link analysis is beyond just this person plus that person and this third person makes a network. You know, quite honestly, link analysis is a great tool and a great analytical methodology that can be blended with any other type of intelligence work because it revolves around one thing. And it revolves around what you and I are doing here right now, communicating, talking with one another. Everyone talks. Everyone loves to share information and communicate. Same thing is especially said of criminal networks or terror networks. You have these folks that need to have orders doled out, or they love to live their Tony Montana lives and gloat to their buddies what they've done. And so there's so many different things you can do in building these large-scale conspiracies, or even those smaller ones, because it's something that applies to folks not only at the big level. I, I usually pick on them, and I don't mean it out of disrespect. I mean it just because these are more often than not where we see larger-scale issues of this. But the folks that work for the three-letter alphabet soup agencies or your NYPDs or your LAPDs, but even folks in, you know, mom-and-pop intel shops for local law enforcement agencies across the country. We had one, I would say, almost eight months ago, somebody came into us and said, hey, I utilized the skills learned in that link analysis offering to pin together a series of, I think it was serial carjackings or serial hit and runs that were connected to one individual who was just running around, you know, committing these, you know, heinous crimes. So there are kind of extrapolations from that large scale component all the way down to the small scale mom and pop shops as well. And I think that's why it's one of my favorite tools. Plus, it allows me to, I hate to say this, flex the little math skills I have whenever we get into it. Because I hate to say I didn't get into this profession because I'm great at math, Jason. I, I'm just going to tell you. I had a lot of math teachers in high school that tried to get me to step down just because they said, oh, my God, what is wrong with him? But it's, it's great because in link analysis, there's that skill that's beyond that in social network analysis that allows you to essentially assign statistical probability or, you know, a certain numerical value to someone's significance in an organization beyond their title or beyond what we arbitrarily assign to someone. Hey, you're the VP of this or you're the capo of this. But maybe that VP or that capo aren't necessarily as important. You may have somebody who's perceivably a low-level street grunt, but their placement in that organization could be they have so much access to information, they may be a great confidential informant. They may be a good mole, or they may be someone that we want to burn in turn. I mean, that, there's so many different applications we can do just with link analysis and social network analysis that you know, I could sit here and ramble, but I think it's probably one of my favorite aspects that I teach just through my position here at NW3C. So you also teach strategic analysis. And yes, sir. I'm curious, what would you like people to know about strategic analysis? Something that I think a lot of folks 
really gets stuck in their head again, going back to the idea of misconceptions and pre, you know, pre notions on the matter that strategic intel or strategic analysis is this cool, sexy buzzword. You know, I, I think a lot of what folks do in this field is buzzword bingo, where they say, you know, give me that strategic write up of this group. And more often than not, that boss may not know what a strategic look at that write up is. So, but understanding strategic analysis is pretty much knowing the skill set of your analysts knowing that an analyst has extensive subject matter expertise, that they could pinpoint all those key salient points that someone needs to know for any kind of future knowledge and action on a scenario. You know, we oftentimes think strategic, it's very heavy in research, but also when we think about that heavy research component, it's laying out theories and hypotheses about what could happen. And that's the very kind of blasé way to look at it. It's very general, if you will, because there's different types of disciplines within strategic intel and strategic analysis that, quite frankly, would allow you to make more maybe targeted assessment on something. Or if you think more back to what we see from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence with their annual threat assessments, they are a little larger scale. They're a little bit more, okay, here's what we have in terms of data. Here's what we could think may happen. I say could make think because sometimes they're 100% dead on. You know, they talked four or five years ago about a large scale flu-like pandemic that would have swept the, the world. And we saw that with COVID-19, or they, I think, three years ago talked about the imminent pullout and the impacts of the U.S. coming out of Afghanistan. We saw that just this past year. So, you know, their way of predictive analysis is one thing, but making sure these folks have enough knowledge, enough forethought, so they can make some level of educated guess with regards to what kind of action they need to do moving forward, if you want to boil it down to something, making sure they have enough knowledge. Good. All right. And you got a couple of courses here on your resume that you completed that I find interesting. Sure. One is the Certified Cybercrime Intelligence Analyst course. Yeah. 3CIA. So describe that and maybe is that something you – who would you recommend that class for? So I'm not going to lie. The 3CIA is one of the brand-new babies from NW3C. And essentially, when we talk about the concept behind a certified cybercrime intelligence analyst, I think you may agree with this, Jason, but anyone who touches a keyboard and a computer nowadays has a nexus to open source information. I think you can agree with that. Mm -hmm. But beyond that nowadays, even if you go a step beyond just Googling someone or maybe reverse image searching something, you know, if you're looking for those electronic footprints, you're doing social media information collection, you're doing some level of cyber intelligence aspect, Every time we do that, we are having that nexus to a cyber-related discipline. And quite frankly, there's a lot of folks who may not realize they're doing it. So whenever you review kind of the prereqs for what a 3CIA analyst is, a certified cybercrime intel analyst is, then a lot more folks will realize this is something I do. Maybe this is something that I could use if I need to provide testimony on this. Because at the end of the day, we find a lot more folks, whenever they go to the stand, there's a few folks that have those you know, great certifications that are out there. You know, IACA has a great one. They're a certified law enforcement analyst, you know, certification. IALEA has their ASICA, or criminal intelligence certified analyst. I'm actually in line to get that one, so I've got to schedule my test here soon. But the 3CIA will give those folks that adequate ability to sit up there and say, you know what, here is my prowess on this, and here's why I'm going to talk to you folks about this. So it's understanding that even though it says cyber, and a lot of folks get their backs up, especially if you're like me, who never received cyber training early on in my career, I've done it a lot through practice. I've done it a lot through just going out there, getting my feet wet and understanding what the terrain looks like. And that especially involves knowing what open source looks like right now. So definitely something if folks are interested in that to give that a look, because you may find that you're more eligible for it than you think. 
Okay, and we'll put a link to that course in the show notes if folks are interested. Yeah, uh, sure. The other one that I noticed on your resume was suicide bomber prevention. <laughs> that is one of my favorite classes that I ever went to. Early on when I was in the open source Intel Exchange, I forget who it came with. I think it was New Mexico Polytech something or other, but essentially they had this, you know, nationally renowned instructor who came and gave us all discussion points on the ins and outs of suicide bomber prevention. And I love that because it wasn't like, okay, I'm going to be Samuel L. Jackson from The Negotiator <laughs> sitting there talking to this individual off of not detonating their vest. Essentially, it was, if I see the signs, I go tell someone with a badge what the signs were. Mm-hmm. If, if I want to boil it down, that is exactly what it was. And it, it was a unique training. It, it was probably my first legitimate piece of law enforcement training that I received that early on in my career. And it was like, huh. So not everything revolves me, you know, pulling a, a lethal weapon and tackling the guy or something like that. But it involves me, co- you know, cooperating with law enforcement and saying, hey, I think there's something over here you should go check. That that whole see something, say something aspect that if anyone's involved with Homeland Security or Fusion Center, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, we're good. All right. Well, let's finish up with personal interests. Yeah. And you mentioned it. You play rugby. So I find that fascinating. I don't know the rules and whatnot. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'll see a YouTube video or back in the day on ESPN, you might see a rugby game going on and watch it for a couple of minutes. But I guess for those that have no idea what rugby is, what would you tell them? Organized chaos. You know, to be quite honest, I played it for a brief period when I was in college. I loved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason I walked away from it was because, you know, when I was in high school, I was Joe football. Mm-hmm. You know, everything I did, it was like, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do that. But when I got to college, I realized I had to buckle down a little bit and focus more on my studies. So at that point, I think I hung in with it for two semesters or a full year. I, I don't know how to address a year whenever you're addressing college. Is it two <laughs> semesters? Is it one year? The nomenclature is the same. It, it means the yeah. same thing. Yeah. But regardless, it's... And somebody told me this when I first got there. I was, like I said, I was probably 50 pounds heavier, 55 pounds, you know, heavier at that point in time. And, you know, I was playing nose tackle football. If you know football, you know, that's the big guy in front of the center who just makes the center move for him. Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah, you can't run full tilt at somebody in rugby. And I thought, why the, you know, why can't you? <laughs> and then I realized, oh, because we're not wearing pads. And if I hit you in the right spot, I'm going to hear that lovely noise that no one wants to hear in your shoulder yeah so it's all about control you know i say controlled chaos or organized chaos yes there is kind of that scrambling frantic mindset that goes into it but it's much more control i have a fear you know in my postulation in my observation where when you're bringing someone down you can't just haphazardly knock someone you know down to the ground or you know knock the wind out of them you have to make sure you maintain control go down because if not you're either going to really hurt yourself or hurt the individual that you're tackling and in football you know, that's such a juxtaposition from my football days where it was like, well, it doesn't matter. Get the ball out of their hand. <laughs> I've seen some arguments where people say because of the shoulder pads and helmet that players aren't thinking about safety. Mm-hmm. They think they're protected. They think the other players protected. So they don't think as much about that as something like rugby and somebody will watch rugby and said, well, they don't have any pads or helmet on at all, but because they're stripped of all of that safety equipment, 
it it's more in their mind when they're playing than with you know people that play football oh yeah absolutely and and don't get me wrong even you know the time i played football i i hurt myself during that too i still have a an injury that will forever haunt me and i won't even get into that because it should have been should have been a bone that was broken when i played but we never did and now i'm you know i'm closer to 30 than I am 18. So I'm mm-hmm. not going to jinx breaking something just for the sake of breaking it now. <laughs> I, I have a nice workout rhythm and I want to keep it that way. <laughs> yeah. So, so when was the last time you played rugby? Oh, 2014, 2013. It's, okay. it's been a while. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. And so, all right. And then you, you said you got back in the golf during the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The golf bug. So you got to think, what was the one sport that you're guaranteed not to be around other people? And if you are around other people, you're going to be socially distanced because inevitably somebody's going to shank one in the woods and they're going to go look for it. Yeah. And that's golf. Yeah. So I, I, I love golf. Yeah. It's funny. I played during the pandemic. It was first time in probably, I don't know, seven, eight years. And I played as if I'd never picked up clubs before. And I was like, oh, F this, I'm not doing this anymore. And then <laughs> about a month ago, a buddy talked me into going, and I played better than maybe I ever had in my life. And now I got the bug back again that I want to go out and play. So you know, I I don't tell many folks this, but right behind me set my set my club. So at a moment's notice, somebody could say, you know, hey, after work, are you? And I'm already loading up the car. I'm like, yep, let's go. Yep, yep. So it is. Yeah, I think it's just one of those things. I got a desk job. I'm inside all day. It, you know, playing golf is it is an excuse to just go outside and do something. So that's one of the things I really enjoy about it is just being outside doing stuff. You know, and it's it's one of those things too. The one buddy of mine that got back into it, he and I, you know, we go multiple times a week at one point, but then just schedules have been getting you know crazy with the end of the the fiscal year and everything. So, you know, we haven't been going as much, but it's a good you know, thing for my dad and I to get into because my dad, you know, usually golfs a lot with his buddies and he and I golfed a lot more together when I was in high school. But again, that college to professional life, everything kind of got haywire. So it's kind of getting to the point now where if I just on a weekend say, Hey, you want to go? And we just, we just go. Yeah. Hmm. That's nice. Nice. All right. Well, Hey, I am going to move on to words to the world, but we did not talk about comic book movies, but I expect (laughs) Expect a text from me after I watch Wakanda Forever because I want to get your take. So just be looking for that. So Same same here. Looking forward to it. <laughs> okay. All right. So our last segment of the show is Words to the World. And this is where I give the guests the last word. Randy, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? Probably my biggest one is don't be afraid to step up. Quite honestly, there's so much in this profession where a lot of us have the same degrees or similar backgrounds. So don't be afraid to step up and be your own real promoter. You know, I know it sounds kind of hucksterish to say, you know, you have to promote yourself, but what's your brand? What type of person are you? You know, some folks are great at writing, promote that about yourself. Some folks are great at getting up in front of a crowd and talking, promote that about yourself. But a big portion of that is being able to step up and say with a certain level of confidence, this is what I am. This is how I do it. And at the end of the day, if you can stay on your own two feet and promote yourself, that's going to pay off in dividends. 
So always be able to stand up for yourself, put your neck out there, and always be able to say, I can confidently assert myself in whatever my professional endeavors may be. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you. You've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Randy. Thank you so much, and you be safe. Hey, thanks, sir. You too, Jason. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.